Welcome to Water and Air, the podcast trailblazing the way for senior leaders and managers in law to help create culture and capability that allows themselves and their teams to shine. Just like Water and Air, it's the ordinary that creates extraordinary results. And these things can make all the difference between thriving and failing in the world of law. Join us as we uncover and share just what these ordinary things are and how to make them work for you. By Parul Patel, powered by Fuel and Move, your career gym for lawyers. For more information, click the link in the show notes below. Hi, welcome to this episode of Water and Air podcast. And in this episode, we're talking about how to do better business, better business as lawyers and better business for your clients. And what we mean is that by doing the right thing doesn't mean that you have to give up on profit or performance. In fact, in today's episode, we're going to discover that it's actually the contrary. Doing the right thing means finding how to unlock a high level of profit and performance precisely by doing the right thing. And that means it's about more than just ticking boxes. Helping us explore this subject today, we've got with us Colleen Theron from Ardea International. She is an expert in the area of ESG and all that encompasses and has dedicated over the last three decades to this subject. So if you want to know about this area, then she's the person to speak to. So without further ado, let's meet Colleen and get into this discussion. I think we can all agree that humanity and sustainability are worth fighting for. But affecting change means changing how people think, how they behave, how they act. And that's quite tough. But when you're trying to affect change that pits personal comfort against doing what's right or pitting profitability against doing what's right, that is a whole different level of challenge. And I'm hoping that Colleen is going to unpack a little bit of that for us today of some of the insights, obviously, but just how do you overcome those obstacles and how did this journey into ESG and making change for the better come about? So welcome to the show, Colleen. Thank you so much, Pearl. It's just wonderful to be here with you as we checked in before our start today. We met unconventionally a number of years ago and we've stayed connected. So it's a real privilege to be invited onto your discussion today. So thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, so Colleen, let's just get straight into it. You've got Trifactor qualification as a solicitor. You've got three decades of international commercial law experience. The world was your oyster. So why did you choose ESG at a time that you'd already started giving it attention before the before ESG was even a thing, certainly before it was as trendy and, and a front of mind as it is now. So tell us a little bit about your motivations, because I think, you know, ESG was a term coined by Kofi Annan in 2004, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was some time ago and it might have been coined, but people were really focusing on corporate social responsibility as a philanthropic add-on to whatever it was that they were doing in, in their own business strategies or if they were minded to consider what was happening in communities. But I think to go back to your question, I started my career in England, shall I say, or Scotland, looking at environmental law. So really only looking at the E part of ESG 
and potentially some of the sustainability side of things. But I was interested, even at that time, on the broader issues that affect change for business. And during my time when I was working in the city as an environmental lawyer, there was a very key consultation that the UK government started around non-financial reporting. And I remember just sitting up and reading what they were looking to do in terms of bringing non-financial information into key company legislation, which would require more accountability of business. And I just had a sense that piece of legislation or where that was going to go was going to start a trickle effect of change. And maybe it was just serendipitous. I was interested in that. I was more interested in that much broader frame of company behavior that encompassed more than just environmental impact. If I really reflect on this a bit, I was always interested in human rights issues because it's not something we're looking to talk about today, but I grew up as a white South African, a woman in apartheid. For all of my younger life, I wasn't aware of the struggles and the other things that were happening in South Africa until I got to university and I started being exposed more to what was really happening in the South African narrative. And I guess in a latent kind of way, that understanding around human rights challenges and challenges to humanity was probably something that was quite ingrained in me as a person. And really, I set up my business almost in a crisis because I had left private practice. I had worked in publishing, didn't have an extended contract. And I had two very small girls to look after from quite a messy divorce. And in reality, I thought the only skill I had was to set up a business. And what would that be around? That's some skill to have. The only skill you've got is to set up a business is, you know, one of the most complicated <laughs> things that anyone can decide to do. Yeah, um, you know, and I did, but, you know, Perun, I didn't think of it in that way at the time. I just thought, what is my skill set? What am I interested in? So what can I do? And I literally sat on my dining room table and I typed in CLT EnviroLaw, which is the predecessor name to Audia. And I checked whether it was trademarked and I checked if I could buy the domain name and all systems were going. That's what I did. And that was almost 13 years ago. I started that. Yeah. Wow. I want to know all about it, to be quite honest with you, and what you were the story that you were mentioning about growing up in South Africa and not really being aware of the human rights issues there until you went to university. Why don't we start there, actually? How did that make you feel that you had grown up in a country where the issues were so severe, but you had no awareness of them, even though you were there in it? You start with a, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe I didn't know. Why didn't I know? Why didn't my parents tell me? Why couldn't I see? So you have so many questions and alongside that possibly a lot of guilt of what you may or may not have done or affected or could have been part of helping to change other things. You know, my own awakening, if I would put it that way, I had some friends who were quite activist. I used to joke, they used to come to my flat for cups of tea and the security police or the private police were outside. And I used to think, well, they're not looking at me, they're looking at my friends. Well, you know, kind of wave, give them a cup of, my friends a cup of tea, not them. A, a real naivety about it. Um, as I started reading more information and understanding more about what was going on. And I do remember taking part in a protest at the university, a peaceful one, where we were 
arrested on the steps of the law faculty and we were kept there the whole day. And all I remember was how panicked I was that there was a picture taken for the Sunday Times and that my father might see my face on there. <laughs> what is it? What am I doing? <laughs> you know, why am I not studying? What am I doing? I'm about to go to jail. And I guess for me, certainly in this journey of the work I do and what I've set up, there was very much that sense of being called to address justice and to ensure that we understand the impacts of decisions of people and business on perhaps the most poor. 100%. It's almost like that what's required is a, a change of chip, almost like a shift in the mindset of the underlying assumptions or beliefs. Like for, from a few Lemove perspective, I always say to people, we need to put an end to this endless war between life and work and start understanding that it's part and parcel of the same thing. And what we're looking for is creating a complementary work-life system that works for each individual. So there isn't a cookie cutter, there isn't, you know, this works for everyone system, but just changing that chip around from balancing means that there's a war between two parties or two ideas and start understanding that actually they work together. They are complementary factors in having, you know, whether it's moving towards happiness or moving towards economic sustainability, economic performance, whatever it is that you're trying to do, the two go hand in hand. But historically, and all the rhetoric around it has always pitted the two things against each other. If you're doing good, you can't be profitable. So how much profit are you going to forego in order to be good? And that fundamental premise is flawed. And that's the shift that Arde International is trying to bring about. Completely. And, and what I think is interesting too is that understanding culture in business culture I think has often been neglected by lawyers, environmental lawyers, or other lawyers in looking at a lot of these things. And actually, it is the absolute linchpin on how you effect change. I'm encouraged to see that there is more people are beginning to understand that, more CEOs. I still think the pace is too slow. I think that there is still way too much credence still given to thoughts around CSR and profitability and how they cut down profitability, as opposed to also understanding that sewing into this means that you make your business more resilient, ultimately, that, you know, you strengthen what you do. I mean, nothing, when we work with businesses, we are not trying to do anything except make them more effective because actually exactly if you really understand what your impacts are and if you understand what your risks are if you really understand that as a business you can set up effective post processes to manage those risks and that will flow into your policies and that will flow into everything else that you do but if you don't take time to understand that then you left with you know confusion duplication bureaucracy pockets of people doing different things. And I do think that, you know, when you look at the future for companies and you look at the future of where ESG is going to go, you know, we've had a lot of people thinking ESG is just going to be a fad. So we had CSR, then we had sustainability. Now we've got ESG. It's, you know, it's sort of different iterations of the same thing around the three pillars, environment, human rights, governance, or profitability and profitability maybe. But there are enough people that are really bought into 
the understanding that we need to, or business needs to be operating in a different way. That ESG, I do not think is going to go away. And what I've seen in the last two years in the shift of company behavior, where they are inquiring more about how they might strengthen their operations because the investors are asking them questions, because the banks won't give them money at the same price that they used to because they can't evidence their ESG practices, because the consumers that buy their products are walking away by saying, we won't buy from organizations that don't meet our values. Now, there's not a huge, you know, that percentage isn't huge, but it's growing. And it's certainly growing when you look at Zenji and the millennials as, you know, kind of my daughter's age. They are interested in how things are made and they are interested in the impact of the things that they wear on the environment and on people around them. And so, so I do think that the focus on ESG is going to get stronger and that's evidenced by the change in the law. That almost goes back to what we started with. And I said, why was I interested in this? I saw that consultation around the non-financial reporting. And my sense was the law is going to change. When the law changes, things will change. And it's taken 13 years and we're still not there. But if, you know, I share a chart in our training of how the law has grown in this area for the last decade. And it is extraordinary when you look at the amount of laws that have been brought in Europe, in the UK, in Australia, in the US, all concentrating on the fact that business needs to demonstrate how they understand what their impacts are, their adverse impacts, and how they're going to manage those. It's great to hear from you that you're predicting that the continued interest and the continued commitment to improving corporate response and corporate commitment to ESG is going to continue in the foreseeable future. Because I remember reading an article in the Financial Times that was suggesting that ESG is on the verge of becoming in effect defunct, either because it's now covers too many things and therefore needs to be split up into its core components. Again, putting things into silos also doesn't necessarily help the overall outcome because these things are so interconnected. But so it's great to hear that the, the trend is set to continue. And I hope companies don't try and find a way to drift backwards into finding excuses. Personally, don't think this should be entirely driven by compliance. This should be driven by, actually, it's good for business. Making smarter choices is great for business. How do we do that and end this balancing act that we seem to do? If you're making profit, then you can't be doing good. And so it's always a trade-off one between the other. But what if, and I think this is the big differentiator that RDA International bring to the table, is that what if it wasn't a balancing act, but what if doing the right thing was right for environment, was right for humanity and right, because that also means that businesses need to be profitable, right? Because it's part and parcel of that same, the same connected ecosystem in which it all operates. You know, I hope so too. And I think only one thing possibly to add is that there is a lot of debate about the lack of enforcement penalties around a lot of the legislation that is, is in draft format at the EU or coming in or what we've seen with the Modern Slavery Act in the UK. And I feel that's also going to shift the dial. If in fact, we're going to start seeing a change in the law around enforcement directors penalties, that will keep businesses straight because that's when they typically pay attention to what the law says. 
and typically pay attention to what resources are needed to keep them out of jail. You know, the other thing that also fills me with a great sense of hope is actually this new generation, the Gen Z alphas, the generations that are coming through for whom, you know, looking behind the scenes of what they're buying to understand what impact their purchases have, you know, one day they're going to be the leaders, yeah. right? They're going to be the leaders of industry and commerce. Yeah. And then we're going to see, you know, I hope that they hold on to that interest, that passion, that commitment to doing the right thing. And we see that coming about, not just because of compliance, but because that's part of who they are and doing good business is just the way of things. I know, I agree with you. And I uh, let's just hope that, you know, that just becomes stronger and stronger in the way that people make their decisions and that that filters through for business again to see, well, actually, you know, my competitor is doing well because they've got the right things in place. Increasingly, businesses are also being driven to change by their customers. So if you are used to selling a product into a customer who now requires you to present an effective ESG strategy and how you're going to meet those, you've got to sit up or you'll be losing your critical customers. And that is a very big change that I've seen in the last two years, where suddenly businesses are definitely being asked these questions and trying to figure out how they address them effectively so that they can continue to sell into a market that, you know, they're used to being able to do that. And what do you think, is it also affecting, you know, the how from a staffing perspective, what employees are expecting of their employers these days? So if you want to attract the top talent, if you want to attract the best talent, are businesses being affected by those demands as well, so, so far as their ESG policy and approach is concerned? Absolutely. And I think that a lot of businesses do not think enough about this. You know, where if you are blatantly speaking, if you are looking to join an organization where the only people on that board are white middle-class men, you as a woman or a woman of color or anybody else, you're going to think twice about the culture of that organization. And you are going to think hard about whether you really want to be sitting in that. If you have a choice where there's another organization that pays attention to diversity and inclusion and gender issues. And we know that there are loads of reports out about the skill shortages that exist with highly skilled people. And it seems a dichotomy when there's lots of people that have lost their jobs. But I, honestly, I hear it every day, people struggling to get the right people employed because if you're in demand, you have the ability to choose your salary and where you want to work. Yeah. And what I'm hearing as well, what I see when I'm speaking to hiring partners and managers is that the demands that are being made from potential employees is not just about write me a big fat paycheck. They are asking about, you know, is a holiday a holiday? Do I have to take my devices with me? I'm also do some sport on the weekend. So actually every two Fridays, I need to have a Friday off. The negotiating criteria, the things that are on the list of negotiables and non-negotiables is changed significantly. But what I'm seeing is that many organizations, hiring partners, etc., are struggling to adapt to the new negotiating factors that need to be taken into account. And you often see the reaction as, and perhaps similar in ESG is just have more money. They're not asking you for more money. And similar with ESG is like, well, we'll just put another pot of funding there with CSR and, and let them get on with it. 
mentality isn't washing anymore. I was not going to say it isn't going to wash anymore. It just isn't washing anymore now in the present. <laughs> so just, Colleen, we're going to sadly have to bring this to a close. I know there's so much more we could have spoken about, so much more to speak about. But as we close, I just wanted to ask you, projecting forward a little bit about the trends for ESG and I guess more of a focus also on people coming into the sector or wanting to do work, more work in ESG or human rights or any of its elements. And for companies who are perhaps don't really know where to start or, you know, how do they get a sense of wanting to do good business and good profitable business, but don't really know where to get, how to get going with it. Okay. So I think two points in there, sort of where's this going forward? I think all businesses are going to have to think about what their due diligence frameworks look like for both environment and human rights. And they're going to have to think of how they connect these things. So that connectedness is going to be key. For people who want to get started in this, actually, I find that the segue in sometimes comes through environment, sometimes comes through human rights, maybe even through governance. So lots of people come into this in different segues. I think it's finding what aspect you're interested in. It's getting some training. It's getting, it's learning, it's reading, it's listening, it's getting perhaps some experience. I mean, what we often do is as a touch point with businesses, we do a maturity or a, a checklist, a gap analysis on the benchmark of what they are. But we've got an array of e-learning and training options. And I think that without awareness, without understanding for businesses or, in, or an individual, you can't really move the dial. So maybe that's a helpful start for everyone. Yeah. And I guess with our day international, you come alongside organizations who want to, who are committed to making a change to make that maybe not easy, but simple. Certainly sometimes in these journeys, these complicated journeys of change, all you need is some good company. Absolutely. I mean, that's completely what we do, you know, as part of our own culture at Audia, you know, we look to develop relationships with people. My clients are longstanding. They come back, they do bits with us, but we want to develop relationships where we can do that handholding, where people are not afraid to say what the struggles are to, but you know, that they really want to work alongside us as an organization to take them through that journey and that process, because we recognize it doesn't start and end in a couple of months. It's a, you know, a long journey. It could be up to three years where you're de-risking your supply chain, you're implementing change, and then you need to monitor and track that. So that's certainly what we do. And as a business, we've been growing a lot of e-learning guidance briefing. So, you know, as a resource, we've tried to develop that. A lot of free stuff for people who are looking for information to at least go and find some curated knowledge on these particular issues. What I love about your webinars, Colleen, is that they are sector specific. So you really get very quickly into the nitty gritty of what each sector's issues are and where the real big potholes, <laughs> if you like, where the challenges sit and where and how to prioritize that, but for specific sectors, because, you know, ESG is going to look very different for a, an oil and gas company compared to fast fashion, compared to, to sport. And I love the way that you actually even, you know, you do dig you drill down in, into making it very personalized for, for your audience, actually, whether they work with you or not in, in the long run. But if you've got some, some words of encouragement, some edification for anyone really who might be thinking, I want to do this, but it doesn't exist right now. 
you know, what would you say to them to kind of encourage them to that, that even if it doesn't exist right now, even if the platform isn't ready for it right now, what's your words to them? People shouldn't be afraid of what's not there. I mean, it's been like that in history for anybody who's listening. It's not being afraid to take that step. I mean, we haven't talked about it, but you know, I had very little encouragers. I had more naysayers than I had encouragers, close friends, family, that all in the same boat. I think I had one or two people that always believed in what I did. And you only need those two people. And you have to filter out the noise of those that don't believe. I'm not saying be undiscerning. I'm not saying that there aren't people that you should listen to who've got you know, good advice and like a critical friend can help you steer that path. I'm not being dismissive of that. But I am saying there's a lot of noise that's going to come your way of people who don't want to see you successful or don't want to, or who can't journey with you because they're just not able. And learn to put that to one side and say, it's okay. I know what this looks like and I'm going to follow that. And I'm going to try and recognize you're going to fall down often. You know, I was close to bankruptcy more old times than I can tell you. It was, no, you know, just so hard trying to get clients and trying to manage personally with my children. But it does require that resilience and it does require that belief that you can do something and to give it a go. And things will fail. But how do you learn to pick yourself up from that and move forward, really? Fantastic. Colleen, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. We've done quite a lot of traveling today from around here, <laughs> yeah. South Africa, yeah. being an activist to, to advice for future lawyers, future whatever profession people want to do is, is that there are no limitations, really. There are no limitations other than the limitations of your own imagination. So thank you for sharing in and plowing into and sowing in into whoever might be listening to this. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. It was really an honor to be here today and to have a conversation with you. Thank you, Perul. So, I mean, what a powerful discussion that was with Colleen. And today, you know, I just want to leave you with one simple takeaway. So we know that there are smarter solutions out there waiting to be discovered. But how will you unlock them? How will you overcome the common tendency to follow the known, safe, conventional ways of doing things? But that means that you keep on getting the same results, i.e. having to reconcile profit and performance against doing the right thing. How will you shift that so that you can instead activate a wider range of thinking so that you can access those new solutions with better outcomes where doing the right thing might just be the exact key to unlocking a higher level of profit and performance. Thank you for being part of the Fueler Move community. Make sure you never miss an episode release by subscribing and reviewing the podcast below. Also, leave your questions in the comments box below and we'll try and answer them in future episodes. For the latest on performance optimization for lawyers, you can visit fuelandmove.com. Looking forward to you joining us next time. <laughs>